Welcome back. As we continue our series in the DNA of the Christian response to the living and true God, faith, hope and love. Last week we started with the issue of faith and uh, finished with what I consider as one of the most important things to say about the nature and reality of faith, that is the dynamic of faith. And I wanted to begin by asking you, how have you gone? Of course, uh, the whole purpose of reading and understanding the scripture is to acquire head knowledge so that we can have bigger heads. No. The whole purpose of reading and understanding the scriptures is to be transformed by them, to to be transformed uh, in our minds and therefore not conformed to the world but transformed in our lives. And I just wanted to ask you how you're going uh, making sure that any deep thunder of want and woe in your life, if you remember the Christina Rossetti uh, hymn that we ended with, any of the hard struggles, any lack of assurance, any uncertainties, whether they themselves have become moments for faith for you, moments of crying out to thee, crying out to God. Faith, uh, as we looked at last week, I think is primarily oriented towards the past and the present. Entrusting yourself to Jesus that he has dealt with your past, he's washed you clean so that in the present you stand in him tall, straight, clean, clear, confident before God that you are right, that you are justified. Hope, of course, as we move on to this week, is oriented towards the future. I was reading recently of a school system in the United States that had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork while they had extended periods of stay in hospital. One day a teacher was assigned to the program and received a routine call asking her to visit a particular child. She took the child's name and room number and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. We're studying nouns and adverbs in class at the moment, the teacher said. If you don't know what a noun or an adverb is in today's educational system, uh, nouns are those naming words, remember them? And adverbs, they go with verbs. Well, we'll leave it there. The teacher said, I'd be grateful if you could help him understand him so he doesn't fall too far behind. Well, the the hospital program teacher went to visit the the kid that afternoon. No one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in great pain. Upset at the sight of the boy, she stammered as she told him, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and adverbs. When she left, she felt that she hadn't accomplished much. Next day, a nurse asked her, what did you do to that boy? The teacher felt she must have done something wrong and began to apologise. The nurse, though, said, no, no. You don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy, but ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back, responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. A couple of weeks later, the kid explained that he'd completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. Everything changed when he came to a simple realisation. He put it this way, they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? Hope. Hope is absolutely vital in human living and existence. We live on hope. We are creatures who are oriented towards the future. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi death camp system and later went on to become a world-renowned psychologist and psychotherapist. It was his experience in the concentration camp that taught him about the power and vitality and significance of hope. Those who survived were the ones who maintained hope. Without it, you were cactus. 
He wrote this, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, in his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He would let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to any experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed or wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought on by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excrement, and nothing bothered him anymore. Frankel concludes, It is a peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future. And this is his salvation in the most difficult moments of his existence, even though sometimes he has to force his mind to this task. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, the great 19th century uh, anti-Christian philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche's words, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how are true, says Frankel. Whenever there was an opportunity for it, one had to give them a why, an aim for their lives, in order to strengthen them to bear the terrible how of their existence. Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. The typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life anymore. That's the absence of hope, isn't it? The utter absence of hope. I have nothing to expect from life anymore. And Frankel says, what kind of an answer can one give to that? Hope is vital for life. I think far more deeply and profoundly than we realise. Hope is part of our constitution. One of the glories of the scriptures is that we're given a new name for God in the new covenant. He in Romans 15 is called the God of hope. The God of hope. He's never called the God of law or the God of demand. No, he is the God of hope. And so today we're going to look at Christian hope. First, objectively, what is it that we hope for? And then second, subjectively, what is it like to experience this hope? So firstly then, objective hope. If you uh, are wanting an outline, that, that was introduction, it was called Vital Hope. And now we're at point one called objective hope. You'll get, never guess what point two is called? Subjective hope. It's brilliant, but there it is. <laughs> objective hope. Well, first, uh, by way of contrast, let's see what Christian hope is not. <coughs> False hopes. Christian hope is not that life will go, necessarily go spectacularly well for you. It might. You just might be one of those people who sails across the surface of life without getting your feet wet at all. Of course, you get to your end, uh, but we tend not to think about that, don't we? It might go pretty well your life, but God makes no promises in that regard, at least not if you define well in standard worldly terms. House, career, relationships, wealth, health, etc. I was hearing about someone who gave a talk uh, down at UTS just... I was hearing about it today, uh, just recently. And this person uh, 
started making promises that God would deliver. Whatever you want from Jesus, you ask him, he'll give it to you. You want to go skinny dipping? He'll give you that, he said, apparently. I don't know why anyone would say that in August, but then, such is life. Uh, everyone in his ministry who asks for it is healed, he said. That's a lie, I, pre- I presume, or at least a, a, an ignorance. There's no way that that's true. That is not what God promises to you, that your life will go particularly well. In fact, what God promises is pain and persecution. Any who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. That's how it is. The Apostle Paul three times asked that God would remove the thorn from his flesh and the answer was quite clearly and specifically no. Jesus asked if he might not drink the cup and the answer was quite clearly and specifically no. And why would we expect otherwise? This is a a crucifying world. And if they crucified the Lord of glory, why wouldn't they crucify you, his servant? That's the way it is. And it's simply false hope. It's putting words and promises into the mouth of God to say that it will go some other way, necessarily. Don't set your heart on those things. Don't let anyone deceive you about those things. The Christian hope is not that it will be smooth sailing from here to eternity. Second, and a little better, but still uh, down the dodgy end, Christian hope is not that you will go to heaven when you die. At least this recognises that there is some, something wrong with this world and that you might experience a little bit of that something wrong. And so you go, well, not for now, but perhaps for then. The problem with this, of course, is that it is too thin going to heaven when you die. It is too shallow. It is too brittle. It really represents the defeat and frustration of God's purposes. You know, God tried a creation. He thought, that's a good plan, it's worth a go, a creation, a created order full of earth and rocks and bodies and stuff. But, well, it didn't work out. So back to the drawing board, we'll go back to floaty souls and wings and lots of hymns. (laughs) It's too thin. It's too shallow. It's too brittle. And that gives us, of course, a clue to what Christian hope really is. Christian hope, in its content, is the final triumph of the purposes of God. That is the thing for which we hope. The final triumph of the purposes of God. In other words, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. I think it's very important to have a clear sense of the link between what Jesus said and did and talked about, you read it in the Gospels, and what we as Christians are on about and live for. Too often I think we sort of like the Gospels, we get to the end and then move on from them and leave them behind. Certainly my experience as a young Christian was, I lived in the Apostle Paul and Peter, that's what spoke to me. The Jesus stuff I didn't really get. But the content of the Christian hope is precisely the thing which Jesus proclaimed, that is the Kingdom of God. Now Kingdom of course doesn't refer to a geography, uh, or, or a realm, much like uh, the United Kingdom means. Uh, the United Kingdom is having a bad time recently. They came out 116th on the medal tally. Uh, they lost their empire in the 20th century. And frankly, it rains there all the time. So, you know, the United Kingdom's having some raw decades. So who would want a kingdom? And it's good because God's kingdom is not a realm, not an area, geography like that. No, it is a, a reign, R-E-I-G-N. A, a, a rule an exercise of authority. 
it is the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm going to go to the board. So the Christian hope is the kingdom of God. Another way to say the same thing, precisely the same content, is that Jesus is Lord. The difference between two things, of course, is the cross and resurrection. Jesus, pre-cross and resurrection, proclaimed the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is enacted by his death and resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul proclaims the kingdom of God, rarely using that word, of course, but in its present enactment, namely, the reality of the lordship, the authority, the reign, the kingship, the kingdom of the Lord, the God, Jesus, the Son of God. This reign has begun now. Whose universe is it? Who's running the world? Who's in authority in this university? Who's the boss? Who owns this university? Gavin? No. <laughs> Jesus. It's Jesus University. He's entrusted it to Gavin, and Gavin's doing a fair job with it. I guess I'm a limited resources and a federal government that... <laughs> we, we, won't go, we won't go there. Uh, but it's Jesus University. It's Jesus University. That reign has begun, but it is contested. He still has enemies. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Paul speaks about the end, the hope, the goal, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign, Jesus Christ is Lord, that's the kingdom of God, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is reigning, but it's a contested reign. He has enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him, his Father, God. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Very important chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Notice three points about this. This is about the kingdom of God, this chapter. It's about reigning. The issue at stake is who reigns, who has authority and power and rulership. The kingdom of God are not used here, but that's what's on view. Jesus has that power. Jesus has that authority. He is king. But secondly, Jesus still has enemies. Jesus still has enemies, but thirdly, those enemies will be defeated. Now, of course, what's the big enemy? What's the, what's the big bad wolf, spiritually speaking, is of course death. This is the last enemy to be defeated. There's a great hymn, a great kind of... Um, uh, I don't know where girls pick this up, and I'm, I guess it's not only girls, but I, I, you know, in my family it's the girls anyway. They're, they go to primary school, my kid's in kindergarten, and she's taught her four-year-old sister, who's not even at school yet, the nerdy, nerdy, nerd <laughs> Whenever you want to really get up someone's nose, what you do is you go, nerdy, nerdy, nerd <laughs> And it works magnificently with their brother, 
uh, he usually hits them. <laughs> well, it's biblical. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, there is a nerdy, nerdy, nerner song that you sing. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Sucked in death. Suck on that. <laughs> what the Apostle Paul says is, when Jesus returns, then we can sing that song. Right now, of course, we can't sing that song. Because right now, death sings that song about us, doesn't it? It comes and gets us. And those we love, and those we care for, those we look to, and those we've received from. Death still has plenty of sting. It has plenty of bite. It wins plenty of victories. It scores plenty of goals in people's lives and experience right now. But, that is not the end of the story. Death will be defeated. It is the great enemy of God and God is unswerving in his purpose that it will be defeated. All of Jesus' enemies will be defeated. Now think about this for a moment. How do you defeat death? How do you go about defeating death? Well, the way you defeat death is by robbing it of its victims. The way you defeat death is precisely by resurrection. By raising those from the dead whom death has grabbed and captured, pulling back those it's taken hostage. What is the first key component of the content of Christian hope? It's the resurrection. That all people will be raised from death. But it's not just people. It's not just people. It's also the created order itself. The creation itself subjected to bondage and decay and frustration cursed by the sin of humanity, it too will be rescued and redeemed and glorified. Listen to the Apostle, Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Verse 19, Romans 8. Creation is not sort of anxiously scared that when God finally does his thing and establishes his kingdom once for all that the created order will be destroyed. You get any sense of why going to heaven when you die is just too thin and brittle? It just doesn't do justice to the richness and depth of the biblical testimony to the hope that we have. No, creation's not going to be trashed, it's going to be redeemed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. goes on and speaks of the creation... Uh, kind of groaning like in labour pains. Um, the thing about labour pains is it's pain now for serious gain later. It's pain which you bear and endure for the joy and the hope that is ahead of you. And, the, and Paul says, the Apostle, the, the created order is like that. It too will be raised from the dead, if you like. It too will be rescued and redeemed. <coughs> This is the content of Christian hope, resurrection. At the same time, of course, there's a dark side to this. Where's the spell checker on? Judgment. 
Just as the sun's purpose is to cast light, but it also therefore casts shadow, so all those who have aligned themselves and steadfastly refused to align themselves elsewhere, all those who have aligned themselves with sin and death, will be judged and condemned along with them. This too is God's defeat of his enemies. We rejoice as Christians in the hope of resurrection. We rejoice as Christians in the hope of judgment too, for judgment is all about the overthrow of sin and death and evil and all who have aligned themselves with that and who have refused to turn back to the living and true God. Jesus called the outcome, the negative outcome of judgment, hell. That's Jesus' word. And hell too is part of the kingdom that is the rule or the authority of God. I only realised this uh, recently. I had this vague view, uh, uh, informed by that sort of uh, high point of theological reflection, the Simpsons, <laughs> that hell was ruled by the devil. This is what I said. Do you think this? Have you, found, have you ever sort of thought? Because what the Simpsons do, that magnificent uh, you know, uh, reflection back to us of all the things that we think and fear. Um, uh, Homer, I think the whole family actually does a trip down to hell. It might be in a dream. Uh, you know how these things go. Uh, and they're all running around. And who's in charge of hell? What's well, a guy in a red suit? And we're carrying a pitchfork, isn't it? Right? The devil's in. I, I thought when I saw it, I thought, that's not true. That's not true. The devil is not in charge. What happens to the devil biblically? Do you remember? Cast into the lake of fire. Destroyed utterly. The evil one is destroyed. Not given his own kind of patch. No, Jesus rules. He rules it with life and health and joy and love in the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. And he rules in judgment in hell. This is the Christian hope. That Jesus will return and in returning will raise all from the dead and will judge sin and death and evil. (coughs) This is what we look forward to. This is what we strain towards. Notice how the Apostle Paul puts it, when this all happens, Jesus will hand the kingdom back to the Father so that God will be all in all. Just let your mind roll that phrase around for a little bit. God will be all in all. Who is God? God is love. So love will be all in all. There'll be nothing that won't be love. Isn't that fantastic? Love will be all... Truth. No deceptions, no little games... No little kind of manoeuvres, no worries, no anxieties, just truth. Good, loving truth will be all in all. There won't be a corner of the universe that won't be flooded with truth. Justice will be all in all. Beauty, order will be all in all. That is our hope. Not going to heaven when you die, that's, that's, that's pathetic. Our hope as Christian people is that God will finish what he started, this created order which he loves, he loves to give his own son for, his creatures, us and his world, which he loves that much, he will finish the task and rescue it and fulfil it 
<coughs> Notice uh, one final thing here. Jesus is not the means to an end which is somehow separate from him called our hope. Okay, it's not that Jesus heads us towards somewhere called our hope. Rather, Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is, the content of our hope is the Lordship of Jesus. Reigning over death. Reigning over his enemies. Fulfilled in the purpose for which he was uh, sent uh, to, to die for the sins of the world and to rise again for our justification. Jesus is the content of our hope. The reign of God in and through him. Here again then Frankel's words. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. You see, that's you. That's you. There's a sense in which you're a prisoner of this age. And the ruler of this age, you still live in a mortal body. And unless the Lord returns, you will die. And you will feel the sting of death terribly, terribly closely. And it's only as you have faith in this future, it's only as you know this hope in all its richness and depth and substance that you will keep your spiritual hold. You let go of this and you'll drift away. And the fear of death will force you to try and grab everything you can get out of life now because that's all you've got, isn't it? Nonsense. It's not all you've got. This is our future in Christ. This is our hope. Of course, it begs the question, doesn't it, what makes this reasonable? What makes this anything more than simply pie in the sky when you die by and by? That's what I think a lot of pagans say of us. Well, you just can't cope with life, you just can't face up to reality, and so you just kind of project your hopes and aspirations forward. That is not true. I mean, it might be psychologically true, but uh, whether that's how you get to a belief, how you get to believe, a, a belief has uh, no bearing on whether it's true at all. It's called the genetic fallacy, it's quite a common fallacy, people make it all the time. Uh, it's a, just a logical error to say that if you get somewhere by a certain means, that therefore it's untrue. Nonsense. Now, what guarantees that this is the future is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He is the first fruits. He's the beginning. He's the first batch on the production line who stands as an irrefutable, undeniable, as an, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, enactment of this future. Paul, immediately prior to the section in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read, says this, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. I'd have been to to give up the Christian faith. Uh, He's a university student, heavily involved in the Christian group in his city, wasn't Sydney. Uh, He was tired, he was overwhelmed by sins and failure, by frustration, 
and by disappointment other Christians who let him down badly. And he'd had enough. He was sick to death. So he went away. He drove out of town and he found a hotel. He had his alcohol with him. He had his condoms. And he was looking to turn his back on God as much as he possibly could. He thought, to hell with this. I cannot do it any longer. I don't feel like it anymore. Just couldn't do it. Not psychologically. Psychologically, he was well prepared. He just could not do it, though. (coughs) Because it didn't matter how he felt. It didn't matter how angry he was. It didn't matter what he thought. He realised that the resurrection of Jesus, an objective, external, fundamental, undeniable, irrefutable fact that established Jesus as Lord made all the difference. Made all the difference. That this hope was a hope which was certain and true because it was already present in the Lordship, the reigning, the resurrection and ascended Lordship of Jesus, his Saviour. So he turned around. Unopened bottles, unused condoms, and went back to his place and continued to be a Christian and still is this day. It's this reality, the resurrection of Jesus, that functions as a kind of hinge and leads us into the second part of what we need to talk about today, subjective hope. You see how it works as we trace the contour of the Apostle Peter's thought in 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what he says, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The hope we have, says the Apostle Peter, is through the resurrection of Jesus. He's got all this in his mind, right? Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord. And so Peter says, the hope that we have, the future that is set for us, is a living hope. It's alive in us, just like Jesus is alive. It is, in fact, Jesus in us. There are two characteristics, in particular, that Peter points out about this hope. The first is, caught up with the fact that it's termed an inheritance. An inheritance. Notice that. It's an inheritance. Uh, So I think it's a terrific word. It narrows down and gives a sense of this hope. It nicely picks up the idea of something that's yours, but not yet yours, but still really is there. It's not just a possibility or probability for the future. It exists already. Uh, it, It follows out from the fact that you've been born again. That is, you've been made a child of a new family and therefore you have a new inheritance. The point is that this hope, this inheritance is held in heaven for us. Held where God is in order to be brought to us. It will be revealed and given to us. It's not that it might happen or might not. It's there, but it's not ours yet. Uh, My wife is one of these kind of people. uh, She's a bargain hunter. And it's probably, I think, over the course of our 15 years of marriage, spent, no, I'll tell you how much she spent, she saved several tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars because she always buys things cheaply. That means we buy our Christmas presents for the kids in May. Uh, what do you do with Christmas presents when you buy them in May? Uh, you stick them on the shelf. And then you leave them there. 
And then the kids ask about them. And ask about them. And whinge and try and get the ladder and you chop it out from underneath them. <laughs> Actually, my kids were so ratty last Christmas. We're not going to do Christmas presents this year in the family uh, for the kids. They, they need to learn a little bit about greed and not greed. So we're going to do the tear thing this year, right? Give Christmas presents to other people. I'm hoping that they will just break a little bit of the sort of uh, propaganda that they've managed to imbibe at the tender age of four, six and nine. It's a great thing to have those Christmas presents sitting up there. You have them. This is your hope if you're a greedy kid. For us, our inheritance is there. This is our hope. It's kept there, it's solid because it exists in Jesus based on his resurrection. And it can't be taken away. The first characteristic of this Christian hope is its certainty. It's not about your subjective experience of certainty. It is certain and therefore you can feel confident about it. Peter says it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Uh, Of course this is in stark contrast to most inheritances, uh, perhaps even your own inheritance, which can easily be whittled away. A relative mine has a distant great aunt. The thing about this great aunt is that she is the sole beneficiary of a large trust fund worth some millions of dollars and this relative of mine stands to inherit one third of that large trust fund. However, it can't be distributed to anyone else except this great aunt until she dies. While she lives, she gets a huge slab of this trust fund. At the moment she's in robust physical health, aged 102. and going strong. (laughs) Uh, She's in good physical health, but mentally she's uh, not rowing with both oars in the water. (laughs) She loves her cats. Don't we all? She loves her cats. They look after her. They care for her. They're her only companions. And so as the money accumulates in her account out of this trust fund, she's determined where this transferred money, thousands, hundreds of thousands of it will go to the local cat home. In the meantime, my relative prays fervently for some terrible misfortune to overtake her quickly. (laughs) He has an inheritance, but it's one that's not being kept for him. It's one that's perishing and being defiled by cat poop (laughs) and fading fast. Not so your inheritance in Christ. There are no celestial cat homes to whittle away what's waiting for you. Your inheritance, your hope, is being kept for you in heaven with Christ at the right hand of God. It is certain. It is absolutely certain. Therefore, feel confident about it. Don't sum it up, just get in touch with the reality. It's as certain as Jesus is Lord, it's as certain as the resurrection of Christ. That's the first characteristic of living hope. When hope lives in you, then you have a confidence of certainty. The second characteristic is that it is operative in you. Listen to how Peter puts it. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honour and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see what Peter says? Peter writes to his, that his readers rejoice even though bad stuff happens in their lives. And when rejoicing happens in the midst of suffering, that itself testifies to the genuineness 
of their faith. That is how faith, uh, hope works in you. I witnessed this in an especially incredibly powerful way a little while ago. Some friends of mine had been married for a few years and were expecting their child, were very excited. One morning the mother awoke to find the baby still in her tummy. That's not so unusual, but after the minutes, it turns out hours and hours went sort of on through the day and she had various tests in a bit of a panic. It became clear that for no reason the child had died, aged 33 weeks, viable. Viable at 33 weeks. I have some friends who had some uh, two twins born recently at 30 weeks, and they're both about to go home this week. The kid was viable, all but made it. A grief and a pain uh, that I think, uh, uh, even though my wife had a miscarriage at an earlier uh, uh, time in the pregnancy, is just I think very hard to imagine that kind of grief. I was one of the hundreds at the funeral as the father gave testimony to rejoicing in the midst of this awful trial as through the tears that, that fell down his face he's a big, bulky guy he took the words of the prophet Habakkuk to his lips though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no fruit though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls and you can feel what he's saying yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. The preacher uh, preached from the text, Do not grieve like the rest who have no hope, precisely because of the hope of the inheritance that is kept for us. They named their child Brittany Anastasia. Anastasia being the Greek word for resurrection. And the preacher concluded with these words, Brittany is dead but Anastasia will live see that's a living hope isn't it one that operates so that even in the midst of suffering even suffering like that there can be joy not because of the suffering not because of the pain but the joy of knowing that this is not the way it will always be because Jesus Christ is Lord Even more than that, when you have this hope living in you, you have a directed life, a love and trust for Jesus that heads you towards the hope that's being held out for you. Listen to it, 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Although you've not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy for you're receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The hope that is before us kind of draws us forward like a magnet. Those in whom Christian hope lives will be full of direction and purpose. You have a goal in life to live out the salvation that you're receiving, to forge a character of love and generosity and joy. You have a mission in life to bring hope to the hopeless, to share in the doling out of God's mercy as God brings you into contact with the humble poor those whose hopes are futile and they know it and to bring them a real hope a living hope this produces two contrary effects in the person of living Christian hope on the one hand you become not so frenetic about securing your own life and future you know that it's already been secured for you so you're not desperate desperate in life you may know friends like this who seem Desperate to bring every drop of possibility, every ounce of fun, every measure of experience 
that they can because this is all they've got. Enjoy your youth because it'll go soon. But when you have a living hope, you see, you can relax. There's a sense of relief from the quiet desperation. You're not trying to secure life for yourself. God has it perfectly secure for you. But on the other hand, not from need but from surplus, this hope works in you so that you can serve wherever and however God calls you. You may have heard the story of the St Andrews Seven, a group of six university students at St Andrews University in Scotland and their mentor. In many ways, not unlike you people here. Students, some of them were absolutely top students, took out many of the prizes at the university, zealous Christians, and who, uh, as those who knew their hope was kept in heaven for them, were free to give up earthly ambitions. Frankly, this was a star-studded group, and they could have done anything. And what they chose to do was to take the gospel to the millions in India who had never heard. For the sake of Christ, some died within months of arriving aged 30. Most gave up marriage, all turned their back on potentially outstanding and highly lucrative careers. Between them they gave 141 years of missionary service and they were followed by hundreds more. You may say, well, what heroic sacrifice they made. Did they really give up anything actually? Anything that they really hoped for? Did any of it go? As one of them wrote later in life, reflecting on the night he committed himself to missionary work, he says this, that night I resolved to be a missionary and thanks be to God from that resolution I never swerved. It was the happy turning point in my life. That too is Christian hope alive in a person. Hope which gives direction and purpose to life in service of the God who has given you new birth into a living hope. It may well take a different form for you, although I do hope that many will go as missionaries and make Bible teaching your life's work and contribution. Whatever form it takes, it will have the same pattern. A hope that burns brightly in your heart, that enables you to rejoice even in the midst of suffering, that directs you forward to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. One final thought on the matter of Christian hope. Uh, For us, on the first day of spring, I think it is now, the first day of September, I think it's true to say that hope takes a particular form. It takes the form of waiting. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, he says, We groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. I think we need to hear this word about waiting because as a culture we are lousy at waiting. Someone suggested the new measurement of time. It's called the honko second. It's a time between when the light changes and the car behind you honks its horn. The discoverer of this claims it's the smallest unit of time known to science. (laughs) I've got cable internet connection. Slow. It is way too slow. I wait for at least a third of a second for most web pages to load. And I demand better service from Telstra. We are lousy at waiting, aren't we? And I wonder whether sometimes we as Christians can breathe too deeply that spirit we let the horizon of our gaze slip down to the, to the immediate, the pressing. We lose our hope and we panic. We get desperate. We try to secure our lives for ourselves because we don't like waiting. 
Author Henry Nowen wrote about waiting and not panicking with reference to some trapeze artists who became friends of his. He said that there's a special relationship between the flyer and the catcher. When you think about it, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> if I were a flyer, I'd want to have a very special relationship with my catcher. I'd work very hard to make sure there were no, not a single lingering resentment on the part of the catcher that the catcher liked me a very great deal. As the flyer is swinging, the moment comes when he lets go of the trapeze and arcs out into the air. For that moment, right, that moment, which must feel like hours, the flyer is suspended in nothing. It's nothingness. It's too late to reach back for the trapeze. There's no going back, but it's too soon to be grasped by the one who will catch him. You can't accelerate the catch. And in that moment, the job of the flyer is to be as still and motionless as he can be. The trapeze artist told now on this, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. He must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. His job is to not flail about in anxiety. In fact, if he does, it could kill him. His job is to be still, to wait. And to wait is the hardest work of all. I think that's a picture of us in the Christian life. We've let go of the trapeze, this world and its rebellion against God, the cares of the world, the lure of wealth, the desire for other things, as Jesus put it. We've let go. But the future has not yet arrived either. We've not yet been caught hold in all the fullness of God's kingdom and our task is to wait with absolute trust. There's the link, of course, between last week and this week, between faith and hope. To wait with absolute trust to not flail around in life, thrashing about to secure your own happiness and future. That could kill you. Don't do it. Live instead in the hope, the living hope, into which you have been born again. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the gift of this hope which we have grasped. And we ask that you would by the power of your spirit, make it live in us for your glory. Amen.